This is the 59th edition of WFAE Talks. I'm Greg Collard, and I'm joined by Assistant News Director Lisa Worf, who also covers the rabid fox beat. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. This is uh, it, actually it's it's kind of it's quite serious because a fox uh, at some some schools in uh, Steel Creek area was it? Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. uh, bit some kids and uh, ended up having to be shot, and it was rabid and some. Kids are being treated for, for rabies. They don't have rabies, but it's they're getting preventative rabies treatment. Yeah, I believe so. And and uh, you get that anyway after some kind of questionable bite like that, and and then you may get some more treatment after it's it's confirmed. But, but yeah, that it was really bizarre what happened. It bit two preschool age kids, and then at a at Primrose school, and then it went next door and bit someone at a at a middle school? Yeah, exactly. So um, I was talking to Melissa Nicely with uh, Animal Care and Control, and she was telling me kind of how it happened. You know, she said that basically there was this fox sleeping uh, at uh, Primrose Preschool in the flower bed over there, and I guess some kids came out on the playground that was fenced in, and they were delighted to see a little fox out there, and then the fox woke up and uh, the fox started uh, walking towards them, went through the fence, and um, was a was aggressive. Was quite aggressive, and then uh, it bit two kids, and then a teacher got scratched trying to fend the thing off, and then it went like next door to a middle school, and they were having football practice, and it bit an eleven year old girl there, and then finally animal care and control caught up with it, and. Um, then they put out a call, and an off-duty CMPD officer came by with his gun, and um, it was still being aggressive, and uh, shot the shot the fox, and then they hauled it over for testing. And, and just like any other shooting, this the gun was taken away from the officer. It is <laughs> yes. being tr- uh, investigated by Eternal Affairs, just which is standard procedure. <laughs> exactly. Anytime a CMP- CMPD officer <laughs> discharges their weapon. It uh, it triggers an investigation, even when it's it's a rabid fox. So Wait, yes, this other voice you hear is Tom Bullock, <laughs> money and influence reporter. By the way, yes, I, I, luckily I've never been on the rabid beat, but really, yes, internal like they call them over. I almost wonder if there's like some kind of animal, you know, NCIS who's going to come out and. Or I guess whatever. It I don't is. know if they get CSI. called. I don't know if they get called to the scene or what, but there is some kind of some is, kind of investigation. Is the officer My, being, is the officer on administrative duty now? It did not say that in the <laughs> in the press release. So I'm guessing I'm guessing no, but I can I can check up. Doesn't on Doesn't have a revolver. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but yes, you. This is you are on the rabid fox beat. So please check yes. this out. Yes, um, <laughs> yes, CMPD can can like me even more. All right, yeah. I'm going to toss a softball then, um, Greg. This softball will eventually come to you. But do we know if they actually tried to interview the fox? Um, that that is a that is a good question. So that way, we could all know, Greg. What did the fox say? There you go. Exactly. <laughs> And he says, I got rabies. <laughs> oh, I believe in karma, and I have a four-year-old. I'm going to make sure she's not anywhere it's, near no. anything right now. Yeah. Well, well, I very much enjoyed uh, talking to uh, Melissa Nicely at, at Animal Care and Control. She's she was, awesome. She was very patient and very uh, good with my questions. And she said, yeah, if you ever want any uh, intriguing animal stories, we got them. <laughs> and I'm sure they do. So, um, but she said there were 15 incidents regarding uh, rabid wild animals so far this year, mm. and um, you know, very few of them actually bite 
humans. It's mostly uh, pets that get bitten. All right. Well, good job on that reporting this week. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. All right. Other, but there were uh, other things that happened on the political level this week. The legislature, the General Assembly rabid. is done. Yes, rabbit. <clears throat> as long as the uh, the General Assembly went on this year, you wondered if some of them were. Uh, <laughs> Were, were, were rabid. I mean, how long, how much, how long was the General Assembly this year? It, it, it went on, it was supposed to be done by the end of June and it went on until September 30th, 29th, 30th. Yes. Three uh, months. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. It's, uh, yeah. this is the longest, this was the longest session since 2002, I believe. And if I still talk about it in the first person, it's because I still, or in present tense, I should say, it's because I still can't believe it's finally over. Um, you know, I was looking at the numbers because we've, I, one of the things I've been following since, a lot of these battles have been about budgets is how much everything was costing to continue this overtime legislative session. And it's something like two point seven three million dollars, which is, I think, 53 teachers on last year's 53 CMS teachers on uh, just their salary on last year's pay scale. So that's, you know, for a full year. Um, so it wasn't cheap. There were some controversial uh, measures up to the last minute, especially during the last yeah. minute. I mean, that's why I was joking about them being rabid is, uh, you know. Uh, just to give you our listeners a little insight, um, we label all of our stories in little folders. Obviously, we work with computers. I mean, that we're public radio. We actually get computers now. I'm very happy to have my Apple IIc. Um, <laughs> but I have folders on my on my uh, desktop, and I label them what the date and what the story is. And as I was just watching everything unfold, I labeled that story one crazy night because I you just knew the last night of the, the legislature is always a little kooky. But this one in particular was it seemed it seemed as kooky as the worst of the kooky ones. The the first thing they brought up out of nowhere was um, was this bill that at first seemed pretty innocuous. Um, it was about you know qualifications for counselors, and it was about you know different kinds of source materials for sexual education for students, and it was about you know making sure they were educated about sexual trafficking, human trafficking, and then out of nowhere came these three provisions that were an absolute power grab for uh, municipal power. So the legislature was going to take away. And I mean, I know I've said this on the podcast before, but in case we have somebody who doesn't know, we are what's known as a Dillon rule state, which means that all municipal and county government, they only exist at the will and basically the uh, the grace of the state government. So they can give them whatever powers they want, and they can immediately take away any powers they want without any kind of repercussions, really. And um, <clears throat> it uh, this would have changed, you know, zoning laws and the ability to do, I mean, just all kinds of stuff. Mm -hmm. And the thing that's really interesting, and I mean, if you really want to get into specifics, we, I would say go to our website. We've got a couple of really good stories on it. But the thing that was really fascinating was um, it was brought up without ever being considered by either the House or the Senate. This was the first time even a committee had seen it. No one will admit to who put them in the bill. No one. And... Pretty you know, major thing not to have any discussion. <laughs> no discussion. And and because it was con called a conference committee, nobody could amend it. You either had to vote it up or vote it down. Um, they eventually voted it down only after a couple of Republican senators came out – or excuse me, Republican House members came out and said, look, there are some things in this bill that are good, but the procedure is completely broken. We cannot – allow this kind of thing to happen. We used to complain when the Democrats did this. This is a breach of public trust. No one has even considered the ramifications. I mean, in one of the ramifications of this bill, I was talking to uh, Bob Hageman, the city attorney, it would have, um, intentional or unintentional, we don't know, but it would have eliminated what's known as minimum housing laws, which means if you're a renter 
your landlord has minimum things that they have to do in order for you to be able to rent that place for them. They're, they're basically things that make spaces habitable. This law would have eliminated those requirements like you must have running water. You must have working heat. You know, uh, it must be infestation free. What is the yeah, that's what, what is the what is the motive? That's what I'm dying to know. What is the motivation behind this? We don't know who put this in or was it it wasn't intentional. <clears throat> well, uh, part of the motivation we heard on the floor when um, yeah, a couple of the of the House members um, basically were presenting the bill and um, they said, well, these are these aren't things like one of them was a minimum wage. The cities could not create their own minimum wage. And. The, the cities actually don't think they have that power, um, and they use this on the House floor where they did this kind of mock Q&A ses- session between two Republican House members <clears throat> who basically said, did we ever cede this power to the city? And the other one would say, no, we did not. And, well, uh, did we ever cede this power to the city? No, they did not. Or there's federal guidelines to do this, but, you know, no one will admit to who put it in. Um, the only people who spoke openly about it said, well, these are all things that, you know, we control anyway, so... It doesn't really matter. So we don't know the motivation. That's the thing that's fascinating. We don't know. And we specifically don't know why it was rushed at the last second. That provision was stripped out of the bill. That's correct. And only after Republicans, actually, Mm -hmm. as I said, through a fit. The other piece of legislation you were following closely concerned charter schools, Lisa, that would have given them a larger slice of the pie of, of school district money. Yeah, exactly. So right now, charters get money from the state uh, that, you know, all the state gives all school districts sort of what's called per pupil money. And it's about $5,500 or so. And then per what, student, per student. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. And uh, whatever local supplement in, in Mecklenburg County, there's a pretty good uh, local supplement on top of that. Um, but then there's this chunk of money uh, school districts get from, you know, to run federal programs, for example, like the um, school lunch program uh, for uh, students from low-income families. And um, they, on top of money from that program, they also get money to administer that program. Um, And so what this would have done was uh, made the districts give that money to administer that program to charter schools who may not even have the program in place, may not even offer any lunch, uh, so that they would get that those extra administration costs as well as uh, any, you know, grant money that was not restricted that was given to uh, school districts. Now, what is the justification for a charter school getting a portion of federal dollars for a program that they don't even run? What I uh, I talked to supporters of charter schools and they basically said, look, I mean, we already don't get all the money that uh, school districts get uh, for schooling kids um, and that this by giving us a, a larger piece of the, the, the pot, this this makes it fair. OK, why, why not just try to get a larger portion of the of the state funding or the local district per pupil funding? Well, they get all the state funding for, for per pupil. Are you saying just— or, or the local—why not just—if they're saying they're not getting all the money that they should be getting, why not just get a larger portion of the local supplement? Um, they get the whole local supplement. Oh, they supplement. do? Okay. They all don't right. get uh, funds for things like capital money for uh, building schools or, or buying uh, buses to transport students. So, I mean, that that takes a chunk. And, and what their worry is is that, okay— you know, they're not saying school districts are doing this, they say, but, um, you know, uh, that you could make a lot of things a program. And then, you know, that money wouldn't be going to charter schools and it would be a way to protect funds. 
Um, and you know, there's there's a lot of history regarding this this issue. There was a, a court case uh, as far as a local charter school here, Sugar Creek Charter, who was trying to to get more uh, more of those funds. And um, it, yeah, it's 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 an interesting topic. You know, Lisa, um, I have to say, mm-hmm. listening to your report, one of the things I found more interesting, or most interesting rather, mm-hmm. is this would include even things like, um, uh, you know, apparently some public school systems. Uh, go to, to do education in prisons, if yep, I'm correct. And, exactly. And they would, these charter schools who do not do these programs at all, unlike school lunch where some will and some won't, um, they would even get a share of that money. Exactly. So, I mean, CMS runs um, classes in, in the local jail and, and they get reimbursed by the sheriff's department. And because it's it's classified as a reimbursement, that means that money under that bill would, would go to charter schools as well. Again, I'm having trouble understanding the argument that Charter schools should get a portion of that money for services they don't they don't provide. Sure, I mean, it, it, I think it it comes down to really they they feel it's not fair funding now, and so uh, this is just one a way to thing get. to 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 get more money. Well, and and it safeguards them from um, you know having all these different uh, piles of money that uh, they say the school district doesn't let them have. So that that is their argument okay. for right. for getting money for programs that they don't. They don't run. And legislatively, I mean, I think it's pretty clear. It, it boils down, I think you're looking at it, Greg, in almost a ledger, mm-hmm. you know, services rendered kind of, you know, I, I get a service, so I, I have to pay a bill in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not how politics, obviously, sure. it, it's not often how it works. I think this is this really boils down to ideology. And, you know, yes, charter schools are a public school, mm-hmm. but there are some people in the legislature who really feel that charter schools are a much more efficient use of tax dollars. So the more money they can shift... They feel the better the, the the public school system will be. There are obviously people who are adamantly uh, opposed to that idea. So it, it just happens to be, I think, that the people who tend to favor charter bills are the ones who are in power in government right now. But even that surprised me because, like, I know the K through was it K through one charter school adding extra money for mm-hmm. charter schools that failed this year. Which That's was ultimately really what killed us, right? Uh, you you mean the vouchers? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry, the vouchers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, yeah the voucher program. They were going to basically expand the number of kindergartners and first graders that would would be eligible for uh, vouchers. Um, and, you know, you think when you have a kindergarten first grader enrolled, then, you know, that the child is probably going to stay in that school. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it takes it takes up a lot of slots. And and that did ultimately um, get killed. And it was interesting, as you pointed to me to the discussion, Tom, was, uh, you know, you heard a lot of uh, Republicans um, who, who are still, you know, in support of vouchers very much, but say, hey, you know, we got to be careful with expanding this program too much. You know, this is untested. Uh, we want to kind of chart how things are going before we sort of leap in and, and um, you know, open up many, many more millions of dollars to this. But, you know, they did increase uh, voucher funding mm-hmm. by, by $6 million this year. That change to the voucher funding formula was defeated, but how did the charter school funding formula get get defeated? Yeah, and I'm not sure how that got let go. I know that they, um, and I was talking to um, a guy with the Public Charter School Association, and he said, "Yeah, we're you know they knew they had Senate support on this one, but they said when it went over to the House, they really weren't sure what was going on." And um, so what happened is they went into caucus, uh, you know, sort of 
late afternoon and then it didn't show up. But the way it was done means that it could still show up uh, in the short session. So it's not defeated. It just Mm -hmm. never made its way for a vote. Well, one that did make it all the way through has to do with sanctuary cities. Yeah, this is fascinating to me. This is a bill that um, basically would force local municipalities to take part in a federal program and bar cities in terms of reporting, you know, um, people who are not in the country legally. Um, and then it also uh, would ba- would bar cities like Charlotte, and Charlotte is a city that does this, that have come out and have a, have a policy that says we are not the federal government. Our job is not to enforce the immigration laws. It, it, and it ends that. And it's not just a bill anymore. It was signed by the governor this week. Um, it also includes, though, some very interesting provisions that seem to counter this. It's not so easy as to say this is a, you know, anti-immigrant bill. Because it also does something that the immigrant population and the police were both interested in, which is it allows cities to to um, issue municipality IDs, which are not driver's licenses. They're not legal for driving or boarding an aircraft or anything like that, although some people have – some Republicans have said that they would be used for that case. Mm-hmm. Um, but the police wanted this because it – it hopefully will bring some people out of the shadows if they're registered. You know, if you can see who they are, it's not like registering it and then handing that information over to immigration. It's just basically a way to prove who somebody is. And it, the police believe it will help them have a better relationship with what is a sizable population, whether you like it or not, um, who tend not to report things to police. So they're hoping it will help well, cut down on crime. Isn't that they, contradictory? Though? <clears throat> Wouldn't they be forced then to turn that information over? And that's a great question. And that's something the city is not even sure on yet. You know. This this happens so quickly and with so little heads up that, you know, when I when I spoke again to the city attorney, he's like, well, still kind of looking at this. I spoke with uh, Mayor Claude Felter before the debate that, that we co-hosted with, um, <clears throat> excuse me, the Charlotte Observer. And he's like, yeah, I uh, were this whole thing seems really contrary to me. He did, he wasn't even sure if it was if, if a municipality could be forced legally to volunteer for a federal program. Um, nobody's really sure. And that's the trick with this kind of crazy time. Which, which what the last two, couple of days are always are for the legislative session. It's crazy time. Um, it's not that they're not all necessarily bad bills. It's just that things get rushed so quickly, often with such little debate, that no one really knows the ramifications. This is, this is a lot of the – if you go and you look at the bills that are passed this year towards the end of the session and you then look at the bills that are taken up under technical corrections in the short section session next year, you're going to find a lot of these bills – are tweaked in the short session because they were rushed, because mm-hmm. there is unintended consequences, because no one really realizes how all the legislative pieces kind of fall into place. It's common for these bills to be the ones that get changed or modified. But the problem is, is there's still law until they are changed. So, you know, this these are, I mean, this is a big story that I'm going to be following up on next week yeah. because it's fascinating. And to be clear, Charlotte is a sanctuary city. It absolutely is Chapel a Chapel Hill is one. I don't know. If- Asheville? Asheville, but, mm-hmm. but uh, Mecklenburg County is not a sanctuary city. It participates in a program called 287G. Correct. Um, under this law, Charlotte will be forced to participate as well. So, And there's another one that, that, that I think is fascinating is um, as if we don't ha- already have uh, a whole lot of money in politics, there's a new mechanism that um, is so new, it's so, um, it's so compli- potentially complicated and so far-reaching that actually just before we came in to record this, I had reached out to the State Board of Elections to get their – to interview them, to get their take on this new bill. And they're still like, we still need to figure all of this out. What these are, it's all about affiliated party committees, which is a fancy way of saying we're going to be able to create a body that can raise money 
similar to a campaign, but without some of the key restrictions. Like, it's still not clear to me whether or not they could take corporate donations. It looks upon reading the bill as they can to me. I want to confirm that. But the majority-minority leader in both chambers, the governor and the council of state, can each create one of these and get it as a separate fundraising thing with slightly different rules when it comes to campaign finance limits, and then funnel that money to the candidates they choose. So it is a pretty significant change to campaign finance laws, and it will mean significantly more money into these, you know, state uh, elections, and in some cases, you like the governor's race. Um, it's tricky. It's really, it's really mm-hmm. fascinating. And I mean, I, a red flag goes up for me, certainly when I call, you know, the state board of elections who are normally just right on everything, <laughs> and they no say, idea. you know, we want to be responsible. Mm-hmm. We need a second to digest this. Yeah. So when you say they can funnel it to the candidates that they choose, mm-hmm. so, you know, for example, the governor could mm-hmm. decide to to fund uh, specific candidates for local state house representatives or what, I mean, who can they fund well, basically and, and with that money? That's one of the clarifications I and want to get. And they can't fund themselves. N- well, yes, they could because it is a st- officially a separate committee. So here's an example. Yeah. Um, let's say, let's focus on the House. So House Speaker Tim Moore will be allowed to set up one of these affiliated party committees. So will the House Minority Leader. So they can go out and get money. Uh, and it's not clear to me if they still have to stick to the same $5,100 per election cycle because it, this is almost more like a super PAC. Mm-hmm. Although their donors will be public and the amounts will be public. Um, but they can they can raise money as long as the legislature is not in session. And they may also be able to get it from corporations, not just from individuals. And if, in fact, I'm right that there isn't this $5,100 limit, that means corporations can put a whole lot of money in. It would still be public, but you could put a whole lot of money into these. And then Speaker Moore or the House Minority Leader could say, okay, I see four House races where I'm going to funnel all kinds of money in. And if you're giving to, you know, if it's a party committee, they don't have the same limits. You know, there isn't a $5,100 limit. You know, I could give, if I was in Speaker Moore's position, I could give, you know, $40,000 to the Lisa Wharf for Congress committee. Um and I don't Sounds have good. To, <clears throat> Thank yeah. you. You're welcome. Um, and, and again, this is for both the, the Republicans and Democrats. But of course, the trick here is, is whichever party is in power and politics always goes back and forth, they are going to have the ability to raise significantly more money. And what's also interesting is it's the leaders of the caucuses that are the people in charge and are effectively raising the money. They're the most powerful people in the legislature. So... If you have the most powerful person taking potentially huge sums of cash, it, you know, the the money will come. And I think and, and I think next year is going to be really fascinating to watch with this. We need to get that chair fixed. It's very squeaky. I know. I feel I feel like I'm on a ship. It's also very wiggly. <laughs> All right. We'll remember that for, for next week's show. But on to the mayor's race. The runoff election, the Democratic side of the mayor's race is Tuesday. Yep. There was a debate that was on Charlotte Talks this week. What do you think? Well, I think, as always, and this shouldn't be a surprise to anyone, having two people debate is a whole lot easier than yes, having four is. people debate. And it allowed us to really kind of ask some more questions. We co-hosted this with uh, the Charlotte Observer. And the two moderators were our own Mike Collins and Mark uh, Washburn from the Observer. One who, of our favorite people. He really is. I love that guy. <laughs> and I thought, <clears throat> I thought they actually did a very good job asking questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought um, the candidates were given a better chance to... Uh, answer as well, because since it was only two of them and it was a full mm-hmm. hour, they had to get into more details. They had to get into more specifics. And because we're down to two, they also have to start showing light. They have to start showing differences between the two. 
And, um, and, and we've seen that a little bit with the campaigning. We've seen that with Dan Cloutfelter's campaign coming out with two now negative mailers. Mm-hmm. Um, one uh, saying that Jennifer Roberts cut school budgets when she was on the county commission. The second one, which came out on Thursday, um, was questioning her role in what everybody knows is a botched revaluation of, of county property taxes that we're still dealing with the ramifications uh, of, although it never pointed out exactly what her specific role in that was. But we're starting to see the campaign go a little negative and mm-hmm. right before the election. And what I can't figure out is, um, you know, there are no published polls on this. There really isn't any way to kind of take a temperature. Uh, I'm, both candidates have a really significant amounts of money. I wonder if there are internal polls that either has Claude Filter a little worried that he's he's behind, so that's when you tend to go on the attack, um, or if he if he just wants to really – yeah. Crush it. I What's don't Jennifer know. Roberts' response to these accusations of uh, cutting school budgets? Because it, it, that's budgets were cut, but there were the, the economy tanked. The county lost a lot. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, it is during the you know the great kind of recession. Mm-hmm. Um, Remember all the cutbacks they are making to county services. Yeah, and and her answer was actually not that yes, it was the recession we had to cut. It was we didn't cut. Mm-hmm. Her response was that it. You know, if he, it was like balancing your the example she used, it was like balancing your checkbook if you only add up the checks and not the deposits, which is a pretty easy way to look at it. I don't know if that's exactly accurate because what Claude Felter brought up in the attack ad, and actually in the attack mailer, forgive me, I guess attack is too strong. I'd say negative mailer. Mm-hmm. Um, what he brought up is is it was really the per pupil in essence spending, and at the debate, he clarified that a bit more by saying, yes, if you look at the overall budget of CMS, it did actually go up during her tenure, but that's because largely the capital budget, the, the actually what you were talking about before, mm-hmm. Lisa, the building yeah. mm-hmm. uh, funds for new buildings and for school buses and you know that kind of stuff, that that went up, and he says that the amount per pupil actually dropped. So they kind of agreed to disagree on that one. It just says she was the county commissioner when this happened. Are there any signs about who has the advantage going into Tuesday? Because Jennifer Roberts did have the most uh, votes yeah, on I think primary 11, election night. But 11,070 and Claude Felter's like 7,600 and change or something like that. No, it's 38,000 or, or wait. No, I'm thinking of percentages. You're right. Yeah. Um, she got something like 38%, yeah, right? Was around got, 36%. Okay. Yeah. Um, and he was he was second. Um not by much. He beat out um, David Howard by something like 423 mm-hmm. votes. Right. Um, David Howard, this really surprised me this week, actually. This I thought was, um, I guess it was last week. It, it really surprised me because David Howard was angry with Dan Claude Felter. David Howard even said here when he mm-hmm. was doing our interviews um, that Claude Felter told him that he would not run to be mayor, that he only wanted to, you know, stabilize the ship and stick around um, to fill Patrick Cannon's slot where he was appointed to become mayor. Um, And then Claude Felter decided to run. Now, Claude Felter says that's not the way it happened at all. These two men have been at odds about this for quite some time. All of a sudden, he, David Howard comes out and endorses, you know, Dan Claude Felter. And that's actually pretty big. Now, endorsements... Campaign, like political endorsements, aren't what they used to be. Mm-hmm. Everybody doesn't follow rank file, let's go, where our candidate talks tells us to go. But you couple that with Claude Felter's existing relationships with, say, African-American churches. Um, and you start to see what could be a real challenge and maybe the momentum he needs to get in there, which is the top – the highest percentage of, of Democratic voters in Charlotte are African-American women, and they tend to be churchgoers. Mm-hmm. And if he really is building that support, he could easily 
um, steal this one away. And Jennifer Roberts, um, you know, she's basically, I heard it referred to as uh, the old Dean Smith strategy. She's basically trying to, you know, play the four corners or hold the four corners. She's She just almost feels like she's trying to, to hold her lead and, and run out the clock and, and in preparations for a general election. And that may not work here because this is a runoff primary election where the turnout could be very, yes, very like at the last time it was 1.7 percent. Mm-hmm. For runoff. For a runoff. For primary, yeah. yeah. And, you know, it's all about who you get to the polls. And, and, and at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how much money you spent or really who has the best strategy. It literally could be who gets that one extra busload of supporters to a poll. Yeah. Well, we'll find out Tuesday night. You'll be covering that story for us. Yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Okay, guys. Thanks a lot. Uh, Did did it good. It was a fun show. Thank you. I have to admit, it it went better than I thought it would because when I'm sitting in front of the news director and assistant news director, I was afraid it was going to be a performance review. (laughs) (laughs) All right, guys. Have a good weekend. Thanks. Bye.